I'm Carrie Miller, and on Friday, I've got a new interview with one of the hottest novelists in America. Emily St. John Mandel, author of Station Eleven and the Glass Hotel, is out with a book that asks some big philosophical and science fiction questions about time travel. Emily says she made up some of the science, but as this archive conversation with Harvard astrophysicist Lisa Randall reveals, sometimes there's a closer parallel between imagination and science than we'd guess. Here's Lisa Randall in 2015 on Dark Matter, Meteoroids, and the Life and Times of Dinosaurs. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News, now in-depth on how dark matter may have done in the dinosaurs. As physicist and writer Lisa Randall notes in her book Introduction, Hollywood may be the only place before now that dinos and dark matter have been connected. But the science behind the theory of a dark matter-driven dinosaur extinction is provocative and intriguing. And it'll give us a chance to contemplate what remains unknown about dark matter. Turns out a lot. So for you, what's always puzzled or interested you about dark matter? What questions come up for you? Think about that. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. You can tweet your questions about dark matter to me on Twitter. It's at Carrie NPR. Lisa Randall is a theoretical physicist at Harvard. Her new book is titled Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs the astounding interconnectedness of the universe. And she's with us today from New York. Hey, Lisa, welcome. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. I've been interested in what happens in uh, dark rooms as a theory like this starts to develop. I mean, where's the moment when you start to really say, what if, what if, what if? And then what happens? You know, I think the thing that people don't realize is you're, as a scientist and certainly as a theoretical physicist, we're kind of always asking the question, what if? I mean, one way of understanding what we do see in the universe is to think about the things we don't yet know about. And it forces us both to think about what's possible and to have a better understanding of what we do see. In, the, in this case, we certainly were not setting out to explain the extinction of the dinosaurs. We were simply trying to understand actually some data that had been observed and didn't have a conventional explanation in terms of the way we usually think about dark matter, this matter that doesn't interact with light but does interact with gravity. And we were asking the question, could it be more concentrated than we had commonly thought? And that kind of led us on a journey where we ended up having this uh, admittedly speculative but intriguing um, hypothesis that allowed us to think more broadly about particle physics, which we do, and cosmology, but also astronomy and paleontology and, you know, down to the existence of life. Okay, I have to say, this is what I really loved about the way you organized the book. You hit on all of that. I mean, you took on, okay, what do we know about dinosaur extinction and why do we know it? Then you took on, what do we know about dark matter? So this is very valuable for me as someone who's coming to this as such a lay person, but now able to understand how this theory came about. So so I thought maybe we'd organize our discussion like that. First to dinosaur extinction. I mean, how much consensus is there that dinosaurs ended up dying out because a meteoroid, which is I think what you call it, hit the earth? And it sounds like there's a lot of consensus, but tell us why. You know, it's and that's absolutely true. When I first started working on this, you know, I I like probably a lot of other people had heard of this so-called impact hypothesis 
um, that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs and also three quarters of the species on the planet. Um, but I didn't realize how solid the evidence was that an impact really occurred at that time. I mean, having said that, I just want to be clear. We don't know the details of what killed the dinosaurs in the sense that, you know, a, a joke, but it's true. Every disaster scenario of a movie except zombie apocalypse happens. I mean, there's <laughs> there's tidal waves, there's fires, there's earthquakes, you know, there's global warming, global heating, there's dust. In the there's just tons of things that go wrong. And there was excessive volcanic activity also at the time. But there's a lot of evidence that shows there was an impact that happened. And not only did that impact happen, the remarkable thing is that we have identified the actual crater that corresponds to this impact 66 million years ago. And these two, the extinction, which I can explain more about, um, coincides with that impact to within 20,000 years in terms of actual data. That is to say they happened at the same time. I mean, to have note that these things happen within 20,000 years for something 66 million years ago <clears throat> is essentially saying they happened together. And that's pretty clear. That And the evidence that it was an impact, there's tons of evidence um, in terms of the types of rocks. You can see that there's, for example, shocked quartz. Um, they have crisscrossing layers of, of this crystalline pattern. That happens only if there's a nuclear explosion or an impact. And 66 million years ago, we're pretty sure there was not a nuclear explosion. But in terms of the actual crater... Discovering that is an amazing story in itself, too, because the scientists were looking for something. But the evidence for the extinction was actually all over the globe. So they got to focus their search because we were lucky. And the impact happened. First of all, it didn't happen in the ocean where it would have left no sign. And it didn't happen really deep inland. It happened on a continental shelf, which led to tsunamis that could help localize where it was. On the other hand, Pemex, a Mexican oil company, was actually just doing geological surveillance just to see if they could find oil. And they actually, some of the geologists noticed a circular structure, which was primarily proprietary data. They didn't really release it, but one of the geologists got permission to release it. And actually a reporter connected these two groups. It probably would have taken forever. So it was just an amazing set of circumstances that led not just to the evidence that this um, impact had happened, but this impact coincided so closely um, with this extinction. I, I want to pull something from your chapter, Shock and Awe, which, which really put this in perspective. Your description was great. You say, the meteoroid that may have spelled the end of the dinosaurs was, quote, the size of a major city moving thousands of times faster than a vehicle on an autobahn. And then and then I think earlier in that chapter you say that the imagining the impact of rock on rock it would have been like a nuclear blast. Do I do I have those right? Um, more or less. It's about 500 times of something on the autobahn. And, um, and it was about 10 to 15 kilometers big. So it was going, yeah. you know, at least at around 30 kilometers per second. It's very, very fast. That's per second, not per hour. 30 wow. kilometers per second. Man. Um, so it was going extremely fast and it was very big. And the amount of an energy released. And one of the things that people don't fully understand, I certainly didn't understand until I started working on this, is what happens is something that big hits and it actually compresses the rock. And then there's essentially a, an explosion, a shock wave that comes out that creates this circular structure and also releases this dust that appeared all over the globe. Um, and that was one of the – and it also, of course, you know, heats up the planet, causes fires, it causes tsunamis. So it does a lot of damage. But it also created this dust um, that created this layer 
that helped identify not just that the extinction happened, but also the, the length of time it took for the extinction to happen. And can you say more about what it meant that there was so much dust for so long in the atmosphere? Well, that, you know, we only partially understand. Um, the thing that is well understood is something called, it's called the KT layer. Um, it's a layer of clay. And I actually had the opportunity to see this when I was in Spain. I was very lucky. Um, there's actually rock. So K actually stands for crida, which is uh, Cretan earth, which is chalk. And that comes from the fact that there's this layer of limestone, which is basically fossils of small creatures, shells, essentially. Um, then it's separated by a layer of clay that contains a high level of iridium. And we'll get back to that iridium because that was very important. And it's separated from a, a grayer layer of rock above. That grayer layer of rock happened because so much stuff went extinct that it no longer left fossils. Um, the clay itself and the iridium was critical because iridium generally doesn't happen on the surface of the globe. Um, that is to say that any heavy elements that exist usually get sucked into the center. Um, so the iridium, the idea was that the iridium must have come from stuff hitting the earth. And it was actually thought that this could be a way to measure how long it took. The, it was supposed to be like a cosmic hourglass of meteoritic stuff that would hit the Earth. But it turned out there was an incredible enhancement of iridium, indicating something from outer space really had impacted and been spread all over. So that layer um, was the first real clue that it had been a major impact that caused this extinction, this layer of clay that contained iridium and really high, high elevated levels of iridium all over the globe. Of course, in addition to that, like you say, there could have been dust released into the atmosphere. There also was excessive volcanic activity that seems to have happened around the same time. That's extraordinary. All of this could release carbon dioxide and dust into the atmosphere that could block the sun. But there's also, you know, there's global heating, there's global cooling. There's all sorts of effects that happen. Okay, so now let's join. Now we now we understand again, or we re remember what happened potentially with this. There's theory a lot of evidence <laughs> since then. Actually, it's ah. really amazing how much more evidence we have now and the timing. But now particular. let's bring dark matter into this. It, it, it's, right. So right. your book explains how much is now known about dark matter. What is it for the purposes of our discussion today? Well, for the purposes of our discussion, actually for the scientific purposes, it is matter. That is to say, it collects, it interacts with gravity like matter. It collects into galaxies and galaxy clusters like the matter that we see. But what distinguishes it is that light just goes right through it. It doesn't interact with light as far as we know. So in some sense, it, I wouldn't call it dark. I would call it transparent. Hmm. Light just passes right through it. In fact, billions of dark matter particles are going through us every second, but we don't know about them because they're not interacting with us. But if there is an enormous amount of dark matter, and indeed there is an enormous amount, there's five times the energy in dark matter as in ordinary matter. If it carries that much energy, and there's a lot of it, then we can observe its gravitational influence. Um, and that's the way we found out about dark matter in the first place. Observing, for example, the motion of stars in our galaxy, which corresponded to, it, it looked like there was more matter than could actually be seen, as uh, Vera Rubin and Ken Ford found. And that's actually true. And it turns out there's a whole lot of dark matter in our galaxy, too, which is holding it together. If there wasn't that dark matter and stuff was moving that fast, stars were moving that quickly, they would just fly off. They wouldn't be bound into the galaxy. So you need additional matter that keeps it all gravitationally bound. So that's what dark matter is. It's matter that interacts with gravity-like matter, but as far as we know, doesn't interact with light. And it's not made up of atoms. It's not made up of charged particles. It really is a new type of matter, 
Um, you know, it's funny. So many people get upset by this idea, you know, but you, you think with the Copernican revolution, we would kind of wake up to the fact that we're not the center of the universe and maybe not even central to the makeup of the universe. Um, you know, there's no reason that, you know, we're pretty random. I find it incredible. I really do genuinely find it incredible that as much of the matter is the kind of stuff we're made up of. There's no reason that had to be the case. Yet we are um, 5% of the energy of the universe, about one-sixth of the matter of the universe. Hmm. Lisa Randall is with us if you've just tuned in. We're talking about her book, Dark Matter and the Dinosaur. She's a physicist at Harvard, writes about science. I, I If you missed this, I was saying to Lisa, I love the way she organized the book because where what do we know about dinosaur extinction? What do we understand about dark matter? And so much more science included in this book. And so we're stepping through that to try to understand where this theory comes together. If you have questions uh, some questions maybe about dinosaurs, but also questions about physics and dark matter. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. I, I just read a tweet, Lisa, that says, these shows and segments like this one with Lisa Randall on dark matter and physics are some of my absolute faves. Thank you for bringing the science. That's fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> that is nice. Thanks for sharing that. And to the phones to Alex in Hopkins. And Alex, you have a question about physics, dark matter. What is it? Yes. I wondered if time is conserved as matter and energy is conserved. Is there a conserv- concept as a conservation of time? Um, actually, t- time is in some sense complementary to energy. So it's energy that's conserved in time, sort of, it tells how things evolve through time, the same way um, matter and, and, sorry, momentum and, and space. So um, it's not really conserved. Alex, does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. All right, good. This is my question, Lisa, about dark matter. Is it difficult to solve some of the unknowns about what dark matter is actually made up of? Because... Right now, you don't have the technology to detect it, or is it because scientists don't know where to look? Or what? What are the reasons that you can't know as much as you'd like to know about dark matter? Well, that's a great question, and of course, all the stuff we don't know about is because we haven't seen it yet, observed it in some way. I mean, to the extent that we observe it, I mean, that's not entirely true. It's possible we can observe things and not understand them. But, of course, when we're talking about dark matter, we're talking about something that is almost by definition difficult to observe. I mean, we literally cannot see it, and we've observed its gravitational effects. And people try to look for small interactions with matter. But the kind of work I do, I I call myself a model builder. Um, The role we play, you know, I can work on what I admit is a completely speculative theory. We don't know if it's right. But my reasoning that justifies this, and I think it is incredibly important, is that if we don't look for things, we don't find them, because these are very challenging, difficult experiments. You know, if you, if you have a needle in a haystack, if you don't know what are the signs of what to look for, you're never going to find it. Um, we see that, you know, for example, most people might have heard about the discovery of the Higgs boson. Mm-hmm. The reason we found the Higgs boson, there were a billion events that look like a Higgs boson, but we knew precisely what would distinguish that particle from the surrounding events, and that's why we can find it. So by working on models, you have guesses of what to look for. And, you know, they're educated guesses. They're not just out of the blue. I mean, we're putting together things that we do know about the universe. We do know about forces and the underlying principles. But the idea is this interplay of suggesting what you can look for based on what's been seen and then letting people do the observations. And it suggests different ways you could find dark matter. I mean, dark matter is, as you said, very challenging to find. I mean, we could be lucky and there can be a tiny interaction with light and several methods of detection are based on that. 
But another possibility is that dark matter's gravitational influence could be different than we thought, because maybe dark matter even interacts with itself in very special ways. That is to say, just like our light doesn't interact with dark matter, maybe dark matter is charged under its own light that allows dark matter particles to interact with themselves, but not necessarily with our matter. Now, if that happens, it could lead to very different gravitational influences, such as even a dark matter disk inside our own Milky Way plane. So we could search for that through existing satellite measurements that wouldn't have known that's something they can look for unless we suggested this model. So it suggests different ways of looking for dark matter. And I think since we really don't know what it is, this kind of multi-pronged approach. I mean, you know, it's funny because a lot of the time I'll work on even models that contradict each other. And, and, you know, if I meet people or talk to them about it or even my friends, they think, how could you do that? (laughs) But the point is we're doing science. I don't have over-invested. I mean, I'd like to figure out as much as I can all the consequences. Of course, we would love it if our models are right. But, you know, I joke that it's kind of like people who are sick that don't want to go to the doctor. (laughs) I mean, you know, you're only going to get better if you go to the doctor. So if you have a model, you want it tested. I mean, the fact that it might turn out to be wrong, well, that's just possible. But and you know, but you'll know what to work on next. You just anticipated something I wanted to mention as I heard you describe how you were doing, how this research is getting done, which is needing to be able as scientists to live with uncertainty and and not just live with it, thrive within it. Not to be <laughs> able to say we have all the answers and this is what it is. To really love that experience, I, I don't. Wouldn't think it be nice if are... our politicians felt the same way? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> oh, that's a whole nother show now, isn't it? Oh. But 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 say something about that. That that doesn't mean well, and it didn't pan out. And so we failed. You need to be in that space. You know, it's really funny. I don't know. For whatever reason, you know, even as a kid, I grew up with the idea that like, when people said they knew all the, when they said they knew all the answers, I just knew they were stupid. You know, <laughs> it's, I mean, that's exaggerating slightly. But, you know, I think the ability to be confident enough in what that you do know things that you do know how to evaluate what's true and what's not true. And um, that's not to say you don't listen. It's not to say you don't move forward. I mean, it's not, and it's not to say you don't know anything. You know, one thing that's important, and I try to stress in this book, is we know an enormous amount about the universe and the solar system. Um, and it's incredible how much we've learned in the last 50 years even, you know, th- as a society. I mean, we've made tremendous progress in understanding things, but there's a lot of questions we don't know the answer to. And of course, that's what makes it interesting. I mean, if we knew all the answers, why would I be a scientist? I mean, we're trying to figure out the things we don't know. And that process of discovery is exciting itself. And of course, sometimes it can be disappointing. Sometimes it can be elating. But I don't think not knowing everything, I mean, that's just an inevitable fact. We will never know everything. So it, but the fact that we can advance what we do know and that we can evaluate whether it's true, and sometimes realize, well, okay, maybe we were wrong about something. But I think that is such an important process moving forward. And I really do mean that, you know, tr- it's true in the scientific realm and it's true in other realms, too. I mean, to, we should learn from mistakes. To the phones to Jill in Coon Rapids. Hey, Jill, your question for Lisa. Um, yes, my question, um, kind of a two-part question. The first part is, are antimatter and dark matter the same thing? And the other part of that question is, is it possible um, that when the, at the quantum level, when, say, quarks or whatever interact, when the antimatter interacts, particle interacts with the matter particle, it says, I've heard that the, the antimatter disappears and, and is no longer there. Is it possible that that antimatter particle um, becomes dark matter and that's why we don't see it? Or is it possible that it could be converted to positive matter, that the charge could be changed? 
if antimatter is exactly the same as matter except for the charge. Hmm. Okay, so here's here's the story. Okay, so first of all, antimatter is not dark matter. And how do we know that? Because antimatter, we call it antimatter because it carries the opposite charges to our particle. And by opposite, that means if matter, a matter particle such an electron is has negative charge, its antimatter particle, a positron, has positive charge. But by definition, it has charge, which means it can't be dark matter. It interacts with light. It has charge. Um, the part that you said that is actually getting at something that is true is that a matter particle and an antimatter particle can annihilate together. So both of them disappear and turn into energy. Now, again, this is depends on what dark matter is. But if there is a tiny interaction with ordinary matter, there's a possibility that that can actually, that energy could turn into ordinary matter. So ordinarily, if, if dark matter doesn't interact with ordinary matter at all, aside from gravity, that's basically not going to happen. But if there is a tiny interaction, it is possible that matter and antimatter can annihilate to produce dark matter. And I just want to say, you know, I, I try to be really clear. You know, when I first started writing the book, it was funny because um, I explained what dark matter is in the very beginning. And I actually explained what it's not, which right. is to say things like it's not black holes. It's not right. dark energy. It's not antimatter. And, um, you know, I say they're no more alike than, you know, black ink and film noir. They just have similar names. And my editor actually said, why are you talking about black holes? That's just confusing. I said, you have no idea. Like so many people <laughs> will confuse it just because of the name. And so it's really important to recognize that although these are all some, somehow mysterious and unknown things, they are all different. I also want to say, because we've got so many people that are curious about dark matter, that I read the piece that you wrote in the Boston Globe about dark matter and empathy which fits so well with what we were talking about in the uh, at the beginning of the hour and I know you listened to that. I, I want right. to quote I want to quote something that you wrote in that piece. People's attitude toward dark matter is bedeviled by the same instincts that influence their responses to different races, castes or classes whom they might not truly see but who are nonetheless essential to society. Oh my gosh! I should have brought you in in the beginning of this this conversation. <laughs> I know, I in tell me, lot. tell me how you're thinking about this. I mean, I know that sounds almost radical these days, but you know, one of the things that really struck me when people talk about dark matter, they really talk about it as if it's like a foreign thing, almost like a bad thing. You know, I think part of it is the name dark. You know, we're so you know, just as people, you know, it's ironic, of course, but we have to see things from our own perspective. That is the only perspective we have. Um, but what I, I think the, there's like a lot of lessons to be learned from science because one of the things, you know, even when I wrote my previous books where I would talk about, you know, scales or distances or energies very removed from what we see. I mean, quantum mechanics seems strange because we don't live at scales where quantum mechanical rules apply. Yet if we, we would have to change our perspective to do that. Yet with science, we know that's what you have to do to make advances. We know you have to get outside the perspective of your immediate environment. And we are now plagued by these really difficult problems. And I'm not at all claiming I know the answers. But it seems obvious that we have to get outside our own perspective to at least view things from another perspective if we're going to be able to really understand. Um, you know, this this piece sort of, the germ of this piece was actually really interesting because when I first started the book, you know, I had analogies to all these other hidden things that we don't see that are nonetheless essential um, you know, I talk, for example, about bacteria in our bodies. There's 10 times as many bacterial cells as human cells, but we ignore them, um, even though they're essential to our lives and existence. And um, I did this, and actually, um, 
I was read about this at an artist colony, and um, a young African American heard my my thing, and I de- hadn't actually met him. And he said, "You know, I know this sounds crazy, but are you actually talking about race?" And the really funny thing was that I had actually been talking about race, and I had removed it because I realized it was just too confusing. But the fact is, you know, we just don't see directly other th- others' perspectives. We have to somehow get outside our own perspective. And that's not to belittle it. It's not to say one is better than the other. In fact, it's to say quite the opposite, that we have to sort of elevate, the, you know, the pers- other perspectives if, and treat them on more equal footing if we're going to be able to make progress on a lot of the difficult issues. You know, I really hear what you're saying here. And, and the connection, I think, is not something that's immediately obvious between race and empathy and dark matter. (laughs) I get it. That's why I took it out. It was a little confusing. But as I hear you saying this, I think, you know, so much of what we think we know is visual, right? It's not really saying anything else to us, as far as race goes, about humanity, but except that what we're interpreting through our eyes, and boy, we add a lot of stuff on top of that. But also, I think, you know, it's just that we build our intuition is built on our own experiences. Yes, I mean, exactly. that's inevitable. And that's true in science, too. I mean, you know, I'll talk about quantum mechanical worlds. They don't seem, you know, people will ask, like, almost question them, like, are they real? And they are real. It's just not the ones that we are familiar with. But that doesn't mean they're wrong. They work extremely well on the scale of an atom. And in fact, we are an approximation to those rules. So I think it's important to recognize that it's not just the stuff that we experience every day that's immediate to us. And that's what science constantly teaches us, how much is invisible, how many, how many hidden rules underlie all the things that seem so obvious to us. Lisa, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for being patient with us at the beginning of the hour. And Well, uh, it's important to get all these things sorted out, too. It so is. Thank and, you very much. And for this excellent conversation. Lisa Randall's new book is called Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, The Astounding Interconnectedness of the Universe. 